0: you to come this morning in your Bible or your whatever means you use, your electronic device, uh, to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 4. Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 4. Just give you a moment to find that, and we'll give you the particular scripture in a moment also. Uh, A good friend of mine, an old friend, many, many, many years ago, whenever he was just uh, starting out in ministry... His home church asked him would he preach on a Sunday night. And uh, this was his first time in the home church doing this. And so the pastor of that particular church, his pastor, was a well-known and quite a charismatic speaker. And uh, so he was not a little nervous uh, having to do that with him sitting in the front row. And so he wanted to do his very best. He wanted to be good. He didn't want to mess up. And so he got a book on public speaking. And in that book, the author said, whenever you get up to do a public speech, he says, you must get their attention. You must get your audience's attention immediately. Within the first 10 seconds, you've got to grab them. And so he had a plan. And uh, he didn't tell anybody about it. And his message that particular Sunday evening was going to be about hell. And uh, he chose a a text that would speak of the the fires and the flames of hell. Uh, So he got up, he opened his Bible, and he he looked around the congregation, didn't say anything at that moment. He just looked around and uh, didn't give out his text, didn't announce what his message was going to be. He looked around, and then he put his two hands up beside his mouth, and in the loudest voice he could muster, he shouted, Fire! And he really, really got their attention. The trouble was he, he got one of the elders' attention too much because the elder didn't know. He grabbed a fire extinguisher, run up the middle aisle shouting, where, where, where? <laughs> and by the time, the, the time my friend had to explain that it was just a way of introducing his message, well, he, he lost everybody's attention after that. I mean, they, they sat there and they just were, they didn't know what to think. I mean, it was so silly a thing to do. The Scriptures were going to read this particular passage is about the Lord Jesus, and it's the first time that he preaches in his home church, as it were, in his home synagogue, and he really, really got their attention, not in a silly way, uh, but in a way that was absolutely stunning, it absolutely shocked them. The title of my message today is The Preacher Who Shocked His Congregation. And so let's begin reading here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And uh, in verse 14 and 15, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, if we had read the passage before that, we would have saw that Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and fasting And in the wilderness, he was tempted by the devil, those three temptations. And after that, he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he began to preach around the whole Galilee region in their synagogues and in the streets. And and it was tremendous. And he did many signs and wonders as he did that. But then as we come now uh, to verse uh, 16, it says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. So he comes to his hometown. Now remember, of course, that he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth for 30 years, three decades he spent there. But then he, in his ministry after that, he spent that in Capernaum at the home of, of Peter and Andrew. And really that's where he was based during his real ministry. But he comes now to his hometown to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, I like that. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Ever since Jesus was a little boy, every Sabbath he would go to the synagogue. Even as an adult now. And and there was hundreds, literally hundreds of synagogues scattered throughout the whole area. And so wherever he was at any particular Sabbath, he would make sure he would go to a synagogue, whether in a town or a village, he would go to a synagogue. Now there's people who say, well, I don't like organized religion. I don't feel I need to go to any church. I mean, I can worship God in the fields. I can worship God walking along the beach. Well, you know, Jesus, he prayed in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus sometimes went up the mountain to pray. But that never stopped him going to the synagogue. It was his custom. It, it was a, a good habit to have. And he, he loved to go to the synagogue. But then there's people who say, well, you know, there's people who goes to church and they're not very nice. And, and some of them are hypocrites. And I, I don't want to really go there. Well, don't you think there were some hypocrites in the synagogue? <laughs> Do you think everybody was nice in the synagogue? But that didn't stop Jesus going there. And then there may be people say, well, you know, church is boring, and, and the preacher's not very good, and the worship's not good. I mean, it's all boring. I Do not want... Do you think the synagogue, do you think it was any different? I mean, the synagogue teaching was, was laid down by and large by the scribes and Pharisees. You know what Jesus thought of that lot? But that never, ever stopped him going to the synagogue. Uh, my eldest sister who just passed away recently, she told me, now she was married to an evangelist for many years and then he became a pastor for many years. But she says, "Why are we evangelizing all over the country and even in America, she says we went to all kinds of different churches. And some of them were very, very, very good and exciting and thrilling and challenging. Some of them, she says, were quite bland and quite dull. Uh, you know, so they were very, very different. But she says, I made a point when I went to whatever church it was, when I got to my seat... I drew an imaginary circle around me and said, Lord, here I stand today and I've come to worship you and I've come to listen to your word and I've come to pray and I've come to be here prayerfully worshiping. And she says, no matter what the service is like, she says, I had made up my mind. I was going to worship. I was going to listen to the word. I was going to get something from it. Well, Jesus went to the Sabbath, went to the synagogue and every Sabbath. Now, typically... A Sabbath service, there would be the ruler of the synagogue. There would be no like paid clergy like today, either clergy or pastors. There would be the ruler of the synagogue. And it would be his job to make sure that everything was run according to how it should be. And he would know who would be capable of speaking. He would know who could read the scriptures and who could expand a little bit on the scriptures. And so he would, he would make the order Right. And then there would be the attendant or the minister, some translation says. And he would be the one who would be the keeper of the scrolls. Uh, And he would have the scrolls in a box. And when it came time for the the preacher, the reader to read, he would bring out the scrolls. Now, it's going to say here uh, the book, but actually it was a scroll. Uh, And the scrolls would be made of parchment or vellum, be stitched together into a roll, and the sacred scriptures would be written on them. And then they would hand it to the speaker who would open the scroll. And there would be a reading. And the reading would be in Hebrew. It would be translated into Aramaic. And again, typically, the reading would be from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote, and then reading from the prophets. Typically, that's what it would be. Actually, they could be up to seven readers. There could be a priest and a Levite and five Israelites but usually there wouldn't be so many. Usually there'd be one or two who would be the speakers for any particular Sabbath. And then there would be prayer. And it would open with the Shema. Uh, And the Shema means to, to pay heed, to listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The great Shema would always open with the Shema. And then there would be the reading. There would be prayers and it would end and so forth. There'd be worship. And so that would be typically, that would be the, the order of the service. So I say that so that whenever we go to read here, you'll understand what is happening. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The reader always stood to read. Then he sat down to expound on what he had just read. That was the, the way that the rabbis did. He stood up to read the sacred scriptures, then you sat down to expound and explain them. So he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book or the scroll, he found the place where it was written. Now I find this interesting. Either Jesus, he himself chose to read from Isaiah 61. Either that was his choice, he chose. Or probably more likely, that was already designated that day to be read in the synagogue. Because usually the Jews followed a pattern throughout the year in the synagogues. So everybody was singing, as it were, from the same hymn sheet, no matter where you were. And if that's the case, what would be the chances of that particular day, Jesus going into, the, into his home synagogue on that particular day, and that particular scripture had to be read? The very scripture that he would want to be have read, the very scripture that would show forth his messiahship, I think this is the providence of God, you see. This is not by accident. This is the the Lord's doing. So he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or as the NIV says, the year of the Lord's favor. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So now he's preparing now to expound on what he has just read. So he would sit, the rabbi sat, and the people gathered around to hear the teaching. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And so, remember this is the first time that he's now preaching, or about to preach, in his home church, as it were in the synagogue. He's really going to get their attention, not in a silly way like my friend, but really in a very stunning way, he's going to grab their attention. And so they're watching intently. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, no other man in Israel could have actually said that. No other man in Israel would have dared to say that. Any other reader that day would have said something like, one day when Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. One day when Messiah comes, he's going to bind up the brokenhearted, he's going to release the captives. One day when Messiah comes. But Jesus didn't say one day, he said this day. This day, today, in your hearing So in other words, he's proclaiming his Messiahship. What Isaiah prophesied all those hundreds of years ago that was future is now present with Jesus. Now he's saying, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the Messiah. That's in effect what he's saying when he says, this today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a stunning statement. No one had ever said that before. No one could have ever said that before. Only Jesus, the Son of God. And wouldn't you know, it's right in his hometown, it's right amongst his own people. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They had never heard Jesus preach before, they had known him since he was a boy, they'd heard about him preaching. In the region around about and Capernaum, and all, and they heard all the things he said and done. But actually, this is the first time, as far as we know, this is the first time that he actually they heard him preach, and it's in their own synagogue. And they marvelled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. You know, the others said, "Never man spoke like this man." He speaks with authority, not as a scribes. You know, somebody said the scribes spoke from authorities, but Jesus spoke with authority. You know, there's times he said, you have heard it said of old, but I say unto you. So he spoke from his own authority and it really made him different and really made him stand out. So now he's really, really got their attention and they're marveling at him. They're astounded, They're they're shocked at him being able to do this and to say this. And so for a few moments... They're stunned. They're almost mesmerized. Not just what he said, but the way he said it. The authority which he spoke, suddenly here he is in their midst, and they're listening, and their eyes are open, and they're thinking, wow, we'd never heard it like this before. If only it had stayed that way. If only that moment had lasted if only they had a thought to themselves, "This is amazing." here is one of ours. Here's one from our hometown. Here's one who, who made our furniture. You know here's one who made the chairs we sit on because he was a carpenter, and he's coming and he's telling us that he actually is the Messiah. But that moment passed. That moment passed, and they said, "Is not this Joseph's son? Ah, we know who he is. He he lives he lived down the street. We we knew his dad. We we know his mother. We know his brothers and sisters. We know the whole family. They just live up up the road down the street. This is Joseph's son. This is the carpenter's son, and he's a carpenter. We know who he is." You see, the Jews expect that the Messiah, their Messiah, to come unexpectedly, just like out of nowhere, a bit like John the Baptist, who just came out of the wilderness, you know, dressed in in camel hair and and a leather girdle and eating locusts and wild honey. You know, they expected something very, very different. But but Joseph's son, one of us, the the lad that we saw growing up who came here every week, is not this Joseph's son. You know, crowds can be very fickle. And this crowd, this congregation was very fickle. One moment they were marveling, and now they're questioning, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus knew what they were like. And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard, we have heard done in Capernaum, do you also hear in your own country. And so get, get the feeling of this because Jesus got it. He he knew what exactly what they were feeling and how they had so quickly changed. So, physician, heal yourself. This was an old proverb. In other words, prove it. You know, like a doctor who was ill and say, Well, take your own medicine first. Show us how this works first, and then we'll take it. And so what they were basically saying was, well, we've heard about the miracles that you've done in Capernaum. Well, do them here. Uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing. And if you do them here, then we'll believe in you. Physician, heal yourself. Prove it to us. You say you're a Messiah. Okay, prove it. Show us that. You know, that's, that's like the tempter's voice in Jesus' ear. You remember in the three temptations, we didn't read that this morning. Remember in the third temptation, how Satan took him up into the pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down. Surely angels will come in and they'll swoop down and lift you up lest you dash your foot against the stone. I mean, what better way to prove who you really are in front of all the people, there will be hundreds of people thronging around the temple and they see you up there and you throw yourself off and they see the angels swooping in to gather you up. I mean, that would prove who you really are, wouldn't it? And Jesus says, but you cannot, should not tempt the Lord your God. And so he, he must have heard the tempter's voice again, physician, heal yourself. That's basically what it's saying. Then he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. <laughs> No prophet is accepted in his own country. Familiarity can be a dangerous thing. They were familiar with Jesus. They had known him all of his life. It's his hometown. It's his home church. But they had become too familiar with him. And they heard the message, but they couldn't see the Messiah. They heard a sermon, but they couldn't see the Savior. And there's lots of people like that. They're familiar with Jesus. They grew up in Sunday school. They heard all of the stories about the Lord Jesus. Uh, And they've sang the hymns. And maybe they come to church at Christmas and Easter and and they get that that lovely glow feeling. Uh, And they know about Jesus. Uh, But they don't know him as Savior and Lord. Or maybe they even go to church every week and they enjoy the sermons about him. And they're familiar with the stories and the sermons about Jesus. But they don't know him. They don't own him as their saviour. And that's what this congregation is doing here. They heard the sermon, but they couldn't see the saviour behind the sermon. And Jesus knew that. And he said, you know, basically a prophet's not without honour except in his own country. A prophet... The prophets had difficult times, didn't they? It was hard for them. God sent them to his people, and by and large they rejected him. Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. When you look back over the history of the prophets, particularly the kings of Israel, who were so against the prophets many times and wanted to kill them, In fact, in Acts chapter 7, whenever we see here uh, Stephen being tried by the religious crowd before they stoned him to death. And in verse 51 of Acts 7, Stephen said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. And so Jesus knew. He was accepted all around the whole region. The people heard him gladly. They loved him. They couldn't get enough of him. But when he came to his hometown, among his own people, then they had contempt for him. They rejected him. They really did. Physician, heal yourself. We know who you are. You're Joseph's son. But then he said, basically, you know, if God sends you somebody to help you, be careful how you treat them. God sent the prophets to Israel to help them, to show them, to teach them, to warn them, to correct them, to bless them. But they weren't careful how they treated them. Remember Jeremiah? They put him in a prison. They put him in a pit. They despised him. He was warning them. He was telling them he was God's messenger. He was the prophet of God. But they despised him for it, for all of his prophecies. In fact, at one point he says, I'm not going to prophesy to this law anymore. They will not accept it. And they didn't accept it. So then Jesus, knowing that, hearing what they've just said, in verse 25, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens was shut up for three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now this really, really stung them. It really, really did. They did not want to hear this. In other words, the Lord sent, God sends his prophets, you mistreat them. Well, let's see what happens when you mistreat those whom God sends to you. God will send them to somebody else and bless somebody else. He sent them to bless you, but if you refuse it, he'll send them to bless somebody else. And guess who he blessed? A little woman in Sidon. Now, Elijah's ministry was during the time of King Ahab, the worst king that Israel ever had. In fact, it says that nobody angered God more than Ahab and nobody turned the people against God more as a king of Israel than Ahab. And he admired Jezebel, that wicked, evil, awful queen who hated the prophets of God and he raised up her own prophets, 400 of them, prophets of Baal. She was a Baal worshiper, and she brought that worship into Israel. And Ahab embraced it and built a temple in Samaria for the worship of Baal. And so this was a wicked, evil couple. And guess what? Jesus says, where did Elijah go under God's direction to bless a widow? He didn't bless any of the widows in Israel. But where did he send them to? To Zarephath, to Sidon. Now, Sidon was the home place of Jezebel. She was a daughter of Athabale, the king of the Sidonians. So this really was rubbing salt into their wound. I mean, this really was riding them. But it was the truth. And that little widow woman in Sidon, somehow she came to trust the one true and the living God. And God blessed her and God met her need. Then he says, he, he, he dealt with that some more. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Ha-ha! <laughs> Even the successor to Elijah had the same problems. So what did God do? He caused this great general of the Syrian army, who had a little Hebrew maid, who said to her mistress, Oh, would that my Lord was in Israel because there's a prophet there who would heal him of this leprosy. And perhaps you know the story well, how he went there with his great entourage. I mean, this was a great five-star military general, second only to the king of Syria. And he comes there to Elijah's door thinking that Elijah would open the door and buy and scrape to him this great general and make a whole fuss. Elijah wouldn't even go out and see him. He sent his, his servant out. He said, go and dip in the the Jordan seven times. And he was furious. Are not the rivers of Urbana and Farfar are they not clear and cleaner than that old Jordan River? And, you know, he was so proud of who he was, and yet he was a leper. But his entourage says to him, listen, if they'd they'd have told you to do a hard thing, you'd have done that, wouldn't you? Because you're a big, tough soldier. But this is just a simple thing. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? And so that great general humbled himself. He humbled himself. And accepted what the man of God said. And he went and he dipped seven times. And he came out of that river. His skin was like a newborn baby. It was perfect. And do you know what? He became a believer in the one true and the living God right there and then. Elisha's God would be his God. And so Jesus here in this situation is telling them, listen, if you treat the, those eyes God sends to you, like the, the prophet, you treat them badly and wrongly, listen, he'll send them to somebody else and he'll bless somebody else, not you. Now that's what they did not want to hear. And this is what happens. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They're filled with wrath. You know, they marveled at him a little while ago. Now they're mad at him. You know, they were astonished with him a little while ago. Now they're angered with him. They were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hell on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Can you believe that this is his home church, as it were? (laughs) These are the people he grew up with, and they're so incensed. He shocked them so much they want to actually kill him. And they take him out of town to that precipice at the edge of town and they were about to kill him and they were about to throw him over the brow of the hill. You know, it doesn't say, but I've often wondered when I read this, I wonder about Mary. I wonder about his mother. Was she there that day? Was his brethren there? But I wonder if his mother, it looks as if Joseph was was passed away by this time. But I wonder, if it was his mother in the congregation that day? I'm sure she was. And her boy was speaking for the first time in, the, in his home church, as it were. And I'm sure at the beginning, she sat there very proud, just like the rest, just marveling at her son, what he was saying, and enjoying the, the people, how they marveled at her son. But what's she feeling now? when they turned against him, and they're about to kill him. Remember Simeon in the temple, how he prophesied about the baby Jesus that was brought to him and how he prophesied about what he would do, be a light to lighten the Gentiles and so forth, bring revelation to the Gentiles. But he would cause a sword to come. There'd be division among people's thinking. And then he said, and a sword shall pierce your own heart also. And here's the piercing of her heart. This must have pierced her soul to the core to think that her neighbors, to think that the ones that she grew up with are about to kill her only son. Not her only son, but the only one who was the Messiah. About to kill him. Jesus said earlier, he says, you're going to say to me, show the miracles that you do in Capernaum and then we'll believe in you. Well, here's a miracle. It wasn't the one they were looking but here's one here. Look what it says. They led him up to, about th- to throw him out of this. Uh, they rose up and thrust him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hell in which their city was built. They might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Now, there's a miracle. Passing through the midst of them, this angry crowd that's a mob now who wants to kill him. And they're standing there full of anger and wrath. And then suddenly they could do nothing. I don't know how that happened. The Bible doesn't kill us. They must have been dazed. They must have stood there and couldn't move. And Jesus just walked right through the midst of them and walked away and left them standing. Yeah, that was a miracle, but not the one that they were looking. So Jesus shocked that congregation. They had the opportunity to receive him, to accept him. Wouldn't it be nice if they had said, you know, this is wonderful that the Messiah was born in our, came to live in our city, that he's one of us. Wouldn't that be nice for them to say that, that we embrace him, we're so privileged, that he came to us today, that he announced his Messiahship to us, his own people, in his hometown. Wouldn't that have been lovely? But they didn't. They had contempt for him. You know, we read there from Isaiah 61, Jesus quoting from that. But do you know he left? He left a part out of that scripture. Deliberately, consciously left a line out of that scripture. Let me read it to you. From Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and here's the part he left out, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance. Of our God. He left that out. Why? Because it wasn't time for that. It wasn't time for that. That's what they would have wanted. They would have wanted their Messiah to come and wreak vengeance upon their Roman oppressors. That's what they would have wanted. They would have wanted their Messiah to come with a sword, a great military leader, and, and, and rid them of all these pagans who's running their country. That's what they would have wanted vengeance. But it wasn't a day for vengeance. It was the day of grace. It was the day of mercy. It was a day of healing the brokenhearted, recovering of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, preaching the gospel to the poor. That was the day. That's what was to begin with Jesus. And you know, that's the day we live in today. This is not the day of God's vengeance. That day will come. It will surely come. Jesus one day will come with a sword. One day there will be vengeance. And he'll come with a sword. And he'll come against those who came against his people, his nation Israel, and his bride, the church. Away over in, in Revelation chapter six, and it talks over in chapter six about the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seat, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you judge and avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth? So they're crying out for vengeance. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed, as it were, was completed. So there will be a day of vengeance, and Christ will come as a judge. But now he's come as a savior of the world. He's come with grace, he's come with mercy, he's come to forgive. You know, even himself, in John's gospel, Listen to what he said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And here's the scripture we know so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But listen to verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did he not come to condemn the world? Because it was already condemned. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so the world stands already condemned by God. But Jesus comes not to condemn it further, but to save it from the condemnation that's hanging over them. Jesus came to set the captives free. And so today I say to you, if you're watching today, whoever you may be, and you're familiar with Jesus, maybe you were brought up in Sunday school, maybe you went to church at special times, Maybe you go to church regularly uh, and you're familiar with Jesus but you haven't owned him as your saviour and your Lord. Don't, don't be that this congregation in Nazareth. Don't get that familiar that you think, well, I know all there is to know about him. No, no, no. You don't know him as your saviour yet. Receive him and accept him into your life today as your Lord and saviour and then you'll really, really get to know who he really is He is the Savior of the world. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen? Why did you do that today? Why didn't you, even where you sit in your home or wherever you're watching, you know, think about it. Think about it and say, have I ever received Christ into my life as my Savior? And if you can honestly say, no, I haven't. Then why did you do that today? Why didn't you repent Say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I'm I'm sorry, Lord, I haven't walked with you. And I know I stand now condemned before a holy God. But Lord Jesus, I want you to be my saviour today. I want you to come into my life and forgive me and change my life and let me become a real follower of you today. Would you do that? Thank you for listening to the word today. I trust that you've been encouraged that you've been strengthened, that you've been challenged. Don't get too familiar that you miss the Savior today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the Savior of the world, to be my Savior personally. I thank you today. Thank you for wiping my sins away, for making the slate clean before a holy God for making me fit for your heaven. I could not have done it myself. I would not have the power to do it. But Lord, in your grace and mercy, you came not to condemn me, but to save me. So I give you thanks for that today. Thank you for your word that gives us light and helps us and shows us and corrects us and blesses us. So we give you the honor and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we hope that you can join us over these next uh, few weeks of lockdown in your home or wherever you are. And we trust that you'll be blessed. uh, Not just be me speaking, there'll be others who'll be speaking uh, over these next uh, few weeks. And uh, there's other guys in here who's very capable and uh, they will be doing that as well. But I'll be coming back, of course. And uh, so we we trust that you're blessed today and we hope that you have a great week. I know you'll not be far travel, probably. And uh, but keep safe. Try your best just to do whatever you need to do just to be to be safe. Amen? God bless you. God willing, we'll see you next week.